Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Okay, so you, you're here at the end of the third day. <laughs> Are you settling in? Hopefully you're, you're, you've arrived by now. No promises, but maybe you're maybe a little bit more present than when you got out of your car or however you got here. And tonight I wanted to um, talk about one of the, the key aspects of awakening joy, uh, at least in, in my mind. <clears throat> it's come up a number of times, one way or another, either in the, the groups or the, uh, the Q&A or in the, uh, the afternoon sessions. Uh, and that is um, learning to be kind to ourselves and even more uh, the possibility of learning to love ourselves. This is in the, in the order that I put it in, the seventh out of ten wholesome states. It's kind of leading up to, uh, to this. And for me, in this, uh, in practice, <clears throat> not just in this, uh, this program or course or the book, but in practice, uh, I've seen it as the, the turning point in one's spiritual journey. Not that once you get a glimpse 
of who you are that you are head over heels in love with yourself from that point on. There are old patterns and ways that we get caught, but once you do really experience for yourself a sense of who you really are beyond your small self, the way that you hold yourself, or your ideas about yourself, um, even though those ideas might still be there, but a direct feeling, a direct experience of appreciating who you are, then um, that has a chance to keep on growing and blossoming and deepening. And the more you uh, can allow that to blossom and grow, then you can start to explore much deeper dimensions of reality and of practice. <clears throat> There's a, um, a beautiful teaching by Zen Master Dogen, who lived in the 12th century in Japan. It's very simple. He says, to study Buddhism is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be intimate with all things. Let's just take that apart, tease it a little bit, tease it out. To study Buddhism is to study the self. That is, to study Buddhism, to practice like we're, we're doing here, to practice the Dharma, to really uh, understand reality is to study the self. This is the, this is the laboratory that you've been issued to understand what it means to be alive and to be human. So as you're meditating, you look at your mind, you look at your body, you look at this thing called me. To study Buddhism is to study the self. To practice the Dharma, we explore our inner experience. To study the self is to forget the self. That is, when you really see who you are and, um, and truly understand that you're not who you thought you were, which actually turns out to be quite good news, <laughs> um, generally speaking, then you're not so preoccupied with confirming, am I okay or not okay? So you can forget about all this small self-preoccupation. And when you aren't so preoccupied with how am I doing, am I okay, then you actually begin to look beyond yourself and become connected and truly intimate with all things. Because the barriers are lifted and you're no longer either um, not able to let in the love or let yours out or feel some kind of distance and, and disconnection. And so when you lift those barriers, there's a connection with everything and you, under, the, you have a direct experience, not just a a concept, but a direct experience of the interconnectedness of everything. But that key uh, switch of 
to study the self is to forget the self. That is to see beyond the small limited idea of who you are. This is the, 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 the big uh, turning point. And um, for many of us, uh, I would say when people come on retreats, a good 95 to 98% of people in one form or another, one of the major um, challenges on this journey is really um, appreciating who we are and seeing beyond the small sense of self and not being uh, so run by these ideas and judgments about who we are or who we're not. <clears throat> so if that's so for you, you have a lot of company. Uh, if it's not, you're very fortunate, you're very blessed. And as I talk about this tonight, uh, if that's so for you, if you're feeling really good and okay about who you are, celebrate it and keep on uh, seeing that the more you can um, open up to the fullness of who you are, the, the more you are going to awaken joy. And I say this as somebody who this did not come naturally to, as I said, I'm one of the 98%, uh, 99%. And when I was growing up, I did not really like myself a whole lot. I, I winced when I looked in the mirror for the first many years in my life. And the thought of actually liking myself was a big was going to be a big journey. But loving myself, forget it. I was thinking, well, maybe in a few lifetimes from now. And I am here to to tell you, it's absolutely possible. When I was growing up, my an image that I that I had a recurring image when I was a child, and I wrote this, uh, put this in Awakening Joy, was um, I had this vision that before we we're born, we were all um, limbo souls in a kind of limbo uh, bardo state, pre-incarnation state. And I was one of these souls on a shelf and this this image that I'd have and I have it right now in my mind of this big hand that was either God or his assistant <laughs> and in those days God was a he in my mind uh, not necessarily a friendly he but uh, a very powerful he would come and grab, you know, like those those machines that they that they have for the for the kids. You put in the, the coin, and it's the the, um, you know, the 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 grabber, you know. And, oh oh, Johnny, you got a little rabbit, you know. There you go, like that. Well, it was like that. It was like coming out, getting the next soul to be incarnated, and it was supposed to be the guy next to me 
and I got picked up by mistake. <laughs> and somehow I landed here, but it was an accident, and I didn't really belong. And I would be caught, you know. And if they caught me, I'd be sent back. How old were you? This is my, you know, five, six, seven, my childhood, you know. There it was. I, so basically, I was a fraud, an imposter. And that was a very deep feeling inside of me. Not a particularly... Uh, happy feeling to feel like, yes, I belong. In fact, it was kind of like, you know, so, some, some alien spaceship was going to come and, uh, and get me and maybe take me back to where I belonged or back to the, to the limbo souls. So um, I share this because if, if you have those feelings that you're an imposter or a fraud, um, Again, you can be very motivated, uh, and uh, by the way, there's a really good book, it was, it was helpful for me, called um, IP, The Imposter Phenomenon, and the subtitle is, If I'm So Successful, Why Do I Feel Like a Fake? I read that book, it's a good book. Anyway, we have this particular... Um, distortion of perception. Uh, Albert Einstein has this, this phrase, we live in an optical delusion of consciousness. That from our own vantage point, we can't see the truth. And somehow we see a distorted image of who we are that we then believe, that we believe if everybody sees what we see, uh, we're going to be in trouble. And so we got to kind of pretend or hide or, you know, put up a good front. But if they only knew what was going on inside, they could wire up your brain to a loudspeaker. You know. If you could hear your brain to a, and, and wire it up to a loudspeaker and you were put in a room with your own thoughts, blaring out at you. It would be cruel and inhuman punishment for, for most of us. Um, so we, we don't have an accurate perception of, of who we are. And this, um, this practice, this capacity to start really getting who we are is a tremendous gift not only to ourselves, which it certainly is, because we're, we're addressing and relieving all of those ways that we feel small. But it is a tremendous gift to everybody in our lives, because then everybody gets the goodies. Everybody gets all the beautiful qualities that are inside of us. They're not obstructed by not feeling that we're good enough. And one of the ways that we particularly are uh, caught in this trap of not being enough is um, getting lost in our comparing and our judging. Have you noticed that? Yeah. You know, it's, it's, so, it's so prevalent. You, you go down and, and, and eat your meal, 
right? Social time, very social time, there it is, meal times. Meal times or walking, where you're walking nearby. And the mind has an amazing capacity to, to compare. Oh, look how much they put on their plate. Oh, look how much I put on their plate. <laughs> oh, you're such a meticulous mindfulness eater. <laughs> here I am, just such a, you know, klutz and schlep and pig, you know, or the reverse, you know. Oh, who do they think? There's, there's Miss Mindfulness over there trying to be so <laughs> present. Why don't they just relax and cool it? And, and the mind can compare about anything. In one moment, the very same thing can, can elicit either a comparing better or worse than. You're doing walking meditation, somebody comes by very slow walking, and one, okay. one afternoon it could be, gosh, they're going so slow. How amazing. What a good yogi they are. Look at me. And then it could be, you know, come on, just be natural. <laughs> just relax. Who are you trying to show up? And you can have all kinds of that comparing mind can, can come up in a moment and Particularly, how am I doing? Now, the truth of the matter is, even though you might think that everybody is watching you, <laughs> they're not watching you. Maybe they see three months for at times. They're thinking about how people are watching them. On one retreat, you know, I like doing slow walking meditation. I, I, I used to really get into it, and I'd just be, be doing the mental noting and go lifting, moving, placing, lifting, moving, placing, really getting into it. And when I'd be doing it on my own, it would be very enjoyable. Somebody comes in, and I have a whole other reason for doing my walking, and I started to name it, and I, I kind of, you know, busted myself, so to speak, and I started it to label lifting, moving, looking good. <laughs> lifting, moving, looking good, looking good. Lifting, moving. Because I saw that was what was really going on. <laughs> it's humbling. Right? This, is, uh, this is from Suzuki Roshi who wrote one of the best Dharma books of all time, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, and started San Francisco Zen Center and Green Gulch and Tassahara. This is from Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. He says, in our scriptures, it's said that there are four kinds of horses, excellent ones, good ones, poor ones, and bad ones. <laughs> the best horse will run slow and fast, right and left, at the driver's will, before it sees the shadow of the whip. The second best will run as well as the first one does, just before the whip reaches its skin. The third one will run when it feels pain on its body. The fourth will run after the pain penetrates to the marrow of its bones. You can imagine how difficult it is for the fourth one to learn how to run. When we hear this story, Almost all of us want to be the best horse. If it's impossible to be the best one, we want to be the second best. 
That is, I think, the usual understanding of this story and of practice. You may think that when you sit in practice, you, in meditation, you will find out whether you're one of the best horses or one of the worst ones. Here, however, there is a misunderstanding of meditation practice. If you think the aim of practice is to train you to become one of the best horses, you'll have a big problem. That is not the right understanding. If, you're, if you practice in the right way, it does not matter whether you are the best horse or the worst one. When you consider the compassion of the Buddha, how do you think the Buddha would feel about the four kinds of horses? He would probably have more compassion for the worst one than for the best one. When you are determined to practice with the great mind of a Buddha, you will find that often the worst horse is the most valuable one. In your very imperfections, you will find the basis for your firm, way-seeking mind. Those who can sit perfectly physically usually take more time to obtain the true way of practice, the actual feeling of practice, the marrow of practice. But those who find great difficulties in practicing will often find more meaning in it. So I think that sometimes the best horse may be the worst horse, and the worst horse can be the best one. <laughs> Comforting? Yeah. Unless you're somebody who can sit in full lotus and say, hey, pretty cool. Uh, don't worry, you'll have your own set of things to, to deal with. But this is, um, it, it's a beautiful passage because that's how it works, that actually it's by, as I was saying last night, going through all of our challenges and difficulties that we find a strength and a courage and a, and a kindness and a tenderness and a compassion that we wouldn't normally see if it was just clear sailing and easy. Mm -hmm. So this is um, something to consider when you're going through your challenges. You are learning something about the goodness and the determination inside of you. It's something uh, I find helpful to reflect on that even if, you're, if you've gone through lots of trials and challenges and difficulties in your life, that something in you has been rooting for your well-being all along. It is the source of everything that you do. It might be very misguided. It might have learned habits that don't serve it anymore. But everything you do, and you can check me out, don't, don't take my word for it, just see, explore this on your own. But when I look at it within myself, that everything that we do, there's some motivation that this will make me feel a little bit better or make me feel less bad, even if it's self-destructive behavior because there's something deep within us that's saying somehow this will alleviate the pain. 
you know, whether it's uh, uh, abusing uh, substances or uh, or getting into uh, um, relationships that don't work or whatever, we're drawn to somehow think that oh, maybe this will will do it. And if you instead of getting caught in the confusion and the unskillful habits that we've learned, if you can get in touch with that place inside that really is motivated by your own well-being before it gets confused, that's a very good place to connect with because that is a place that's truly rooting for your well-being. Then it's a matter of seeing, okay, where does well-being reside and going for it. That's why wise understanding is so key in this, and then wise intention can set you on that, on that path. So this is really, when, when we talk about being kind to ourselves or learning to love ourselves, I see it as accessing that place inside that is truly rooting for our well-being, that's very um, pure and good and healthy and empowering it, enlivening it, and, um, and connecting with it more and more. <clears throat> so first I want to talk a little bit about this judging mind and comparing mind and then seeing how to work with it and, and actually get, not only get beyond it, but get in touch with, uh, with that appreciation and metta for ourself. In the teachings, this comparing, judging mind is called the conceit of I am. Mana is the Pali word. The conceit of I am. This way that we somehow separate ourselves out. That's the root of it. And by conceit, it doesn't only mean putting ourselves above others. It's any kind of referencing and belief in a sense of self, of separate self. <clears throat> and this creates a lot of problems. This is one of the, the ten um, fetters, they're called fetters, on the way to an awakened uh, being. In, in this uh, depiction of enlightenment, this um, uh, view of enlightenment, there are four stages of enlightenment or awakening. And different fetters drop away at each of the stages. At the third stage, which is pretty rarefied atmosphere, just before one is a fully enlightened being, at the third stage, there is still this conceit of I am. There's still the comparing in the mind. So, if you still find yourself comparing and judging, it, one way you can think of it, it just means you're no higher than third stage. <laughs> but you do have a lot of company. This is not just you. And you say, God damn, I can't believe how much I'm judging and comparing. And, uh, yeah. 
this is what the Buddha had, had to say about this. He says, One who thinks oneself equal to others or superior or inferior for that very reason disputes. But one who is unmoved under those three conditions, for that person the notions equal and superior or inferior do not exist. One sees through this sense of self. For one who is free from such views, there are no ties. For one who is delivered by understanding, there are no follies such as these. But those who grasp after views and philosophical opinions like these, they wander about in the world annoying people. <laughs> and you know who is most annoyed who we most annoy ourselves by our judgments. Why? Because every time it's either am I as good as, or better than, or worse than, somehow there is this either not measuring up or reifying a sense of self that says, oh yeah, I'm cool. Hey, I hope you got it. So. It's, uh, it's really important to see and to notice this habit of mind and to notice it with tremendous compassion. When for you has it come up in these last few days? Uh, we, won't, we don't have to take a, a poll, but uh, uh, you might have noticed it, like I say, in the eating. You might have noticed it in the hall, how somebody sits or maybe how somebody dances in, 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 the, in the movement session. And it's one thing to say, oh gee, that person is so beautiful the way they move their body. Lovely. That's just an observation. It's a whole other level to say, gosh, they move it so beautifully. Look at me. <laughs> then it stops being appreciating the aesthetics and the beauty, which is a lovely thing to do and starts getting into, I'm not good enough. Or maybe you've seen it in just, as I said, walking in the halls. Or the clothes somebody else wears, you know, oh, gosh, they're stylish, and I just brought all these uh, schmatas with me. It can, it can happen on anything or in your life. Just think about how it works in your life. Maybe your friends who uh, who are really successful, or who have what you're hoping to have, or maybe those who uh, who have, you know, whether it's relationship or um, or a job or in one way or another, they've passed the test that you haven't quite given for yourself, and we can have that comparing mind about other people. Or we can have it about ourselves, too. Like, it's so common that people come on retreat and they say, well, my last retreat, I had this incredibly profound sitting. 
or experience. You know, this is just not cutting it at all. <laughs> I am. I'm, I know I'm backsliding in my spiritual practice, <laughs> and that's one of the one of the difficulties about having a very profound, beautiful experience. The mind says, "Yeah, I got it," and now I lost it. And it can be very, very painful. Let's see if I tell you the story. Maybe I'll tell you the story. On my very first retreat, I was so fortunate I got this teaching. Um, I had this, it was the first time I, um, I meditated and it didn't matter if the bell never rang. I was so completely at peace. It was like I was breathing in and the universe was breathing out. And I was breathing out, and the universe was breathing in. We were just, it, it was fantastic. I got so excited. The next time I sat down, cool, let's bring it on again. <laughs> and it wasn't there. And for the, for the next few days, every time I sat, I was hoping, and it wasn't happening, and it was very frustrating. And I went into Joseph and I said, look, I had it a couple of days ago and I lost it. <laughs> How do I get it back? <laughs> and he, he shared with me a story that I was so grateful it happened on my first retreat. Uh, he shared with, he writes this in one of his books too, but he shared with me in, in a very graphic, poignant way. He said, you know, uh, there was a period in my own practice when I was uh, sitting in India and sitting for, you know, I was sitting for months. Uh, he would do long periods of practice. Uh, and at one point, every time I sat, it was like my body was free flow and my mind was so clear. It was, it was really delicious. And then I came back to the States, knowing, this is him talking, knowing uh, I'd be going back and, uh, and practicing in another month or so. And I came back and I didn't sit much and I just kind of got into uh, you know, Western life. And, and when I got back to India, he said, I remembered very well the space that I was in. I sat down and it was, as he said, my, my mind was like mud and my body was like twisted steel. And then he said, I spent nearly two years trying to recapture that experience. And then he looked at me and he said, I was the dummy. I did it for you. You don't have to be the dummy. <laughs> Just be with things as they are. Thank you very much. <laughs> And it was incredibly uh, powerful because, as I've shared with, with a number of people here in the, uh, in the groups, what is happening is completely out of your control. So for you to take either credit or blame is really missing the point. Just being with the way things are is the deeper and deeper understanding. That's where freedom is. Things are as they are. So the comparing can be about others or about how you were in meditation practice or in your life. Oh, I, so, I had it together last year and now I'm a mess. You know, 
that's not how life is. Only if you believe that it's a mess, you are here operating on a, um, a ride. And it's your business to be here for the ride. A lot of times, as, as has came, come up in the conversations, um, it's rooted in this feeling of unworthiness. That somehow I'm not good enough. I'm not complete enough. There's a kind of fear there that if, you know, like me with the imposter phenomenon, if I'm caught, you know, then uh, I'll be seen. And that I don't deserve to be happy. That's often what, what, uh, what people come, uh, come to me with. Or somehow um, it's, it's not enough. We're not enough. This basic deficiency, is, as Aaron was saying, this is a great misunderstanding. I was at a sitting at a, a three-month one of my in the second uh, three-month course that I sat, and uh, the Dalai Lama came at the end of the course. It was a very good way to break the retreat and to, <laughs> to have a visit by the Dalai Lama. This was in 1979, and he came and had a, a Q and A uh, session. And somebody asked him about um, what do you do with self-hatred and unworthiness? And uh, it took a while for the translator to translate the concept to him. They went back and forth and back and forth until finally the Dalai Lama got it. And he, when he did, he looked at this guy and he said, you're wrong. You're absolutely wrong. Imagine the Dalai Lama saying that to you after like two and a half months of sitting. You're wrong. <laughs> but he said it with incredible compassion. And he went on to say that what makes you think that everything, this is what I got from it anyway, that everything in, in this world is part of the fabric of life and somehow you're a mistake. You're not good enough. This is a real misunderstanding. You, you really need to see that you are part of this fabric of life. There's a, a line in, uh, in the Course in Miracles um, that I love that says, Believing in your littleness is arrogant because it's preferring your own opinion to God's. <laughs> Believing in your littleness is arrogant because it's preferring your own opinion to God's. What makes you think that your judgment of how you are is more accurate than whatever puts you here, the divine? Mm -hmm. So a big part of this is really seeing, who, simply seeing who you really are. I want to uh, explore a little bit of working with the this judging mind and the comparing mind. First, I think I'll, I'll read, um, read a couple of quotes. This is from Nyosho Kempo, the, um, uh, a great um, Tibetan master. He says, Buddha nature the essence of awakened enlightenment itself 
is present in everyone. Its essence is forever pure and flawless. Those who recognize their true nature are enlightened. Those who ignore it or overlook it are deluded. There is no way to enlightenment other than by recognizing your true nature and identifying it within one's own stream of being. If you want to go for enlightenment, it doesn't mean getting rid of who you are. It means recognizing who you really are beyond those small ways that you compare or judge yourself. Mm -mm. So, mm, a few ways to work with this judging mind. One is, as we've been talking about, real kindness and forgiveness. Forgiveness. For forgiveness for just being who you are. You know, there you are, you see your mind wandering all over, and there can be this judgment because you're taking it personally. God damn it, look at my mind, it's just so busy. You don't have control over your mind. What a relief. I talked about that, didn't I? You don't have control over how concentrated or mindful you are. It's just doing its own thing. Or forgiveness for your body. How do you relate to your body as you are sitting here if it's not cooperating or it's got some discomfort? Do you get annoyed at it? Do you get angry with it? whether or not it's here in the meditation hall or if it's um, in your life and there's a pain or there's a condition that causes you pain. How do you relate to your body? Do you scold it? This is not what healing is about. Healing, if you've done any, uh, any research into healing, healing comes from love. And if you're scolding your shoulder or your feet or your back or whatever it is, then all it does is create more tension and tightness. So forgiveness is a very key component of this by seeing this is the body that you've been issued. This is the mind you've been issued. This is the personality that's developed. Uh, Robert Bly has this, this line. He says, um, Every part of our personality that we do not learn to accept and love will become hostile to us. And of course, that's how it works. You don't like your anger, it becomes the enemy. Of course, not that you're gonna like it, but it, you, don't, you don't embrace it and say, okay, this is part of being human. If you get angry with yourself, or your anger, it's different than, than holding it and embracing it and saying, well, I'm human here. I need to work on this and be kind in that, uh, in that journey instead of um, frustrated by it. Mm -hmm. And if you've done things in your past and you're, you have a hard time forgiving yourself, this is also a very important part of the practice 
because we can replay over and over and over things that we've done in the past and they'll always turn out that same way if we're playing that tape of I'm a rotten person. I know I come from a lineage of guilt. <laughs> and all guilt does is re is, is, is continue this vicious cycle of being not worthy and being a bad person. And so what guilt does, you just keep on replaying, yeah, I was a really rotten person, or you go ahead and do something else that confirms just how rotten you are, and you are sabotaging yourself. But when, and the Buddha had a, a beautiful discourse in this, he said, when you've done something that's been unskillful, Instead of keeping on berating yourself, seeing, what can I learn from this? How can I learn a new way? Admit, in this discourse he says, speak to somebody who you respect. And ideally, it's, if you can, make amends. But speak to somebody you respect about it, so you're not carrying it around inside and use it as a springboard to trying to committing to doing something in a more skillful way. Then that's a way to honor and learn from that past experience. And that starts you on a road to forgiveness, what's called wise remorse or wise reflection. <clears throat> but if you keep on replaying that in that old way, Mm. You know, there's a, a line I was saying to somebody in uh, in, in the group or in a, maybe an individual. This line, I think it was Lily Tomlin who, who said it. Uh, I don't know if she said it first, but it's this line: "Forgiveness is giving up all hope of a better past." <laughs> it, it's such a beautiful line. Forgiveness is giving up all hope of a better past. You're not going to change the past. And in fact, if you cringe when you think about something, oh my God, I can't believe I did that. Cringing is actually a very good sign. Because it means you're a different person than you were when you acted unskillfully. So cringing is the first step to say, oh, I'm different, and now forgiving yourself because you didn't understand. This is from... Uh, this is in, in Jack's book, Jack Hornfield's book, uh, The Art of Forgiveness, Loving Kindness, and Peace. And he says, or it says, uh, in the Babemba tribe of South Africa, when a person acts irresponsibly or unjustly, he's placed in the center of the village, alone and unfettered. All work ceases, and every man, woman, and child in the village gathers in a large circle around the accused individual. Then each person in the tribe speaks to the accused one at a time, each recalling the good things the person in the center of the circle has done in his lifetime. Every incident, every experience that can be recalled with any detail and accuracy is recounted. 
All his positive attributes, good deeds, strengths, and kindnesses are recited carefully and at length. This tribal ceremony often lasts for several days. At the end, the tribal circle is broken, a joyous celebration takes place, and the person is symbolically and literally welcomed back into the tribe. Pretty good tribe to hang out with. And when you hear that, you, maybe you were cringing when you said, oh my God, what are they going to do to this person? <laughs> but then you hear each recounting the good things that person has done. It makes so much sense. Of course. They just forgot their goodness. And when we can remember our goodness or our basic decency, then we more and more let it come to life. So this is something that we can do with ourselves as well as with others. We don't have to wait for others to do it for us. Uh, so besides forgiveness, uh, one of the keys, surprise, surprise, is loving kindness for ourselves. Actual loving kindness for ourselves. And what I'd like to do is lead you in a little bit of a loving kindness practice that I found particularly helpful before we go on. And this uh, is a, in the classical loving kindness practice, you do reflect on your good qualities so you feel deserving of loving kindness. The Buddha says in this world, uh, we can look the whole world over and not find anyone uh, more dear to us than ourselves. So this is to really see who we are, look at our noble qualities, and then send some kind thoughts to ourselves. And on the typical loving uh, metta retreat, you're saying these phrases over and over, may I be safe, may I be um, happy, may I be healthy, may I live with ease. And you're just repeating that over and over, 24-7 or it was for all your waking hours. You're just going through those phrases. And after a while, you start to program your heart in that way. So I was doing this period of about six weeks of um, um, loving-kindness practice. I figured, okay, I'm just going to go for it. And the first week was going to be um, metta for myself. And I was doing it, and it was okay. I, was, you know, I had done some metta, and by that time, I wasn't really fighting myself so much. And I was, I had come to some peace with myself and seeing basically I'm, I'm an okay guy. And I was doing, but I was doing it for about three days and it wasn't really juicy. It was okay, but it wasn't, you know, knock your socks off meta. Uh, and I wasn't judging that. I was being patient. <laughs> It was okay, you know. But then as I was doing this, somebody came to my mind who I knew really loved me. And the thought came, gosh, this would be so easy if I saw what they saw. And then I made the magic connecting the dots, and I asked myself, well, what do they see? Why do they love me? And that's when I, I hit upon this kind of uh, practice, this metta practice. So 
I invite you um, to just close your eyes, sit up, close your eyes, and I'd like you to bring to mind some being who really um, opens your heart, who you have an easy connection with. And it can be, as I said before, uh, a pet or a child. It can be somebody from your past, if, if there's nobody apparent right now, or a dear friend, not necessarily a complicated relationship, if that's possible. And just bring them to mind as you close your eyes and see them right in front of you and uh, see them smiling back at you. And for a few moments, just feel that sweet flow of energy that you share between you. How amazing it is that we can have that kind of connection with other living beings. And as you're feeling that sweet flow, for a few moments, let your consciousness drift into their reality and imagine being them for a moment and seeing who they see when they're with their friend. Why do they enjoy hanging out with you? Just notice all the things about you that touch them. Could be your kindness or your playfulness or your loyalty or your creativity or whatever it is, your intelligence, your goodness. Just take it all in. And see if this person, their friend, is worthy of kindness. That's probably all they wish for you. Your own well-being and happiness. And you might even send yourself from their vantage point some good thoughts. May you really be happy and see all the goodness inside of you. And now let your consciousness float back right inside your own body. And from the inside, stay connected with what your friend saw. And wish yourself well. Either may I or may you, if you can. It might help just a... Uh, Put your hand on your heart if, uh, if you'd like. It might help you connect with it, or if you're accessing it, that's fine. And just send yourself some kind thoughts. May I see all the goodness that's inside. May I see who I really am and share my love well.
and just for a moment some appreciation and tenderness for all the gifts you've been given. Okay, you can open your eyes if you like. If you can get even just a glimpse of what your friend saw, that's a good start. You can't pretend that you don't have that capacity anymore. And if you weren't able to access it, just be right where you are and know that this is the area that you really want to work on more and more. I often ask this question, just suppose you met somebody who really got you, who really understood you, who appreciated your sense of humor, and who um, understood your, uh, your take on things, and got your, your hopes and your fears, who really understood you. How would you feel about meeting somebody like that? Wouldn't you feel pretty good? There's one person that gets every joke that goes through your head. <laughs> Only one. There's one person that really gets your take on things. Unfortunately, they're right inside your own skin. So you're operating in that optical delusion. But if you met yourself from the outside, you'd probably be saying, where have you been all my life? So great to meet you. This is just seeing what everybody else sees and we're the last ones to see it because we are focusing on our flaws and how we don't measure up. But if we see, even through those flaws, your friends might know all your flaws, but they still love you. There's something there that touches them. That's what comes out. This is something that you can practice more and more seeing. So, forgiveness, directly seeing who you are, having a sense of humor about how you forget. It's, this is, have, I hope you've seen by now that having a sense of humor makes a big difference in this thing. Otherwise, it's really heavy business. <laughs> Look at my mind. Oh my God. Instead, look at the mind. Holy cow. Look at how slippery it is. Isn't it amazing? Seeing your thoughts as empty. This is one of the things that we're practicing here. I hope also you've seen by now all of those thoughts. They come and they go. Who knows where they came from and who knows where they're going to. And the more you can see how empty those thoughts are, the less power they have over you. I forget if I mentioned uh, Joseph's uh, instruction about, uh, about not believing your thoughts. I'm not sure if I mentioned it here. He says, if you're having a hard time in the meditation hall and your thoughts are giving you uh, a, a, a problem for you, just imagine they're coming from the person behind you. Because <laughs> for all intents and purposes, they are. You don't invite those thoughts in. They just came all on their own. And to see how empty they are, then you can, you can be playful with them. 
and you don't have to take them so seriously. It's all just a play of consciousness. And when, even when you see your good qualities, on one level, you can't even take credit for them. So they're both yours, and they're not yours. Can you say, hey, I've got, I got some pretty good unconditional love here. <laughs> better than yours. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. You know? Or, I've got a kind heart. Hey, pretty cool. It's just been gifted to you. So on the, and you can celebrate how it comes out uniquely out of you. So there's this kind of um, paradox of celebrating who you are and yet not taking credit for it, but feeling grateful that you've been given all these gifts. This is a beautiful um, passage. Maybe you're familiar from uh, Martha Graham to Agnes DeMille great uh, dancer, one great dancer to, uh, to her student. She says, there is a vitality, a life force, a quickening that is translated through you into action. And since there's only one of you in all time, this expression is unique. If you block it, it will never exist through any other medium and will be lost. The world will not have it. It is not your business to determine how good it is, nor how it compares with other expressions. It is your business to keep it yours clearly and directly, and to keep the channel open. So that's what we're doing, to celebrate who we are, not take credit for it, and keep the channel open so that the divine and move through you, as Ajahn Sumedho, uh, one of the most re respected uh, Theravada Buddhists, uh, Buddhist masters, says, this is called the shining through of the divine. And the more you learn to love and be kind to yourself, the more it shines through, and everybody is able to receive it. So this is far from a selfish practice. It's the best gift you can give to everyone. So, let's sit for a few moments. And just contemplate it. As you sit here, just appreciate the gifts you've been given and the life you've been given. And appreciate yourself to whatever extent you can.
may we know and see the the beautiful qualities inside and share our love well with the world. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.